Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you're thinking of putting together a dinner party, don't invite Bill Crystal and Donald Trump, because one of them probably won't come. Bill has been a uh, leading conservative commentator for several decades. He was the chief of staff to then-Vice President Dan Quayle, uh, and has a long history uh, in the conservative movement. But Uh, was one of the sharpest critics of Donald Trump throughout the campaign and to this day. Uh, He's also a member of the board of the Institute of Politics and came by to participate in a panel on the future of the Republican Party in the Trump era uh, and to sit down with me. Bill Kristol, welcome. Uh, Not only an eminent... um, uh, voice, conservative voice in our country, but also a member of the board of the Institute of Politics, which is equally important to me. By far the most important thing. <laughs> it's an honor to be here and uh, good to be here with you. So you kind of come from New York City, sort of intellectual royalty. You grew up in an interesting uh, environment. And, I, you know, I grew up in New York at about the same time. So your dad's name in particular was uh, one that I was familiar with. Talk about, uh, talk about your family a little and, your, and the way you grew up. So I grew up in New York and uh, my father was a writer and pu- pu- book publisher and editor. My mother, a historian. But like most kids, I followed sports more than anything else. And the most memorable thing of my youth was the great year of 19, my junior and senior year in high school, 68 to 70, I guess. Yes, I was had, there, man. You were the there. The Mets. Well, we had everything, right? We had the Mets, Mets in September 69. The Jets. The, Knicks, the Jets. The, Jets, the beginning of 69, yeah. winning the Super Bowl, the first great AFL victory, AFC, I guess we have to call it, victory over the, over the Colts, and then the Mets in that September, and then culminating at just, just after, in the week, 70, just the as I graduated yeah. in the summer of 70 with Willis Reed in yeah. the seventh game oh. against the Lakers. And everything since then has been downhill, basically, well, for me. Well, that, so was, I, that I, was... Life a, peaked, life peaked at age 17. That was you know? an astonishing, uh, that was an astonishing run, man, to be in New York at that time. I'm a Chicagoan now, so I have to keep it on the down low that I was a Mets fan back then, because as you remember, the Cubs... Collapsed. Well, they, they made up for it the now, 40, 70 years later. Is this yeah. 46 no, no. years later? It, it, it took a <laughs> that while. That was fantastic. It took a while. It's Claire McCaskill, who's a big Cardinals fan, uh, tweeted the other day that we're only entitled to a title every 100 years. So I hope she's wrong about that. But, but I, was just, rooting, I was rooting against the Cubs and for the Indians. I don't care much about either team, but on the conservative grounds, that why break a 108-year-old streak? You know, it's one of the great institutions in American life that the Cubs cannot win the World Series. And now it's gone, just like so many institutions are being, <laughs> are being destroyed here in America. This, and traditions and norms, you know? But okay, so I back, grew up, back to, I grew back up to, an intellectual. But, I grew yeah, up you an intellectual but talk about your folks, uh, so I, uh, because they they made an interesting intellectual journey yeah. from the left uh, 
you know, to conservatism. And it's, it was, there were others who followed. Right. Um, so talk a little bit about that. So they that. were kind of Cold War liberals, I think one would say. Uh, I remember my father supported Humphrey, for example, in 68. So he wasn't from McCarthy or Kennedy. He was, uh, in that respect, a kind of, uh, I supported Scoop Jackson. The first campaign I volunteered in was Scoop Jackson in 72. So kind of those old-fashioned labor Cold War Democrats. My father, but going down ba- back in the day, yes, uh, they were sort of, Trotskyites. Well, way back in the yeah. day, they were Trotskyites when they were in college. They met at a Trotskyite meeting, I think, when they were, my father maybe was already in college. My mother was in high school in Brooklyn. So that was in the late 30s, in the middle of the Depression, before World War II, obviously. Uh, my father, actually, they came out here to Chicago. My mother got her PhD here. One of the first women to get a PhD in, at Chicago in history, uh, having gone to Brooklyn College. My father was in the war. Um, I think that cured him. He, he, he wrote later, being in the war of, of sort of socialist delusions and uh, about the world and about also his fellow citizens. So he saw sort of life is more complicated. And so he became, I'd say, a traditional Cold War liberal, though he always had more interest in kind of conservative critiques of progressivism, I guess I'd put it that way. He was sympathetic to religion, sympathetic to doubtful of the kind of utopianism of some progressives. He went to London in the 50s and edited a magazine called Encounter, which was a very well-respected intellectual magazine, um, a lot of literary stuff as well as political things. Came back to New York. That's where I grew up. So in you the spent 60s. so you spent some time in, in London. London. We left when I was six years old. So I and the only thing I I don't really remember it at all. I was told later that I had a British accent. I'd been there from when I was six months old to when I was six years old, and I was told later that I had a British accent when I came back as a six-year-old in first grade. And of course, I was ridiculed for it, and it took me two weeks to lose it. You know, yeah. the great thing about being very little is you can get rid of these. You embarrassing lost the things. accent and picked up baseball. Huh? Picked up baseball quickly <laughs> to make yeah. myself a real American, and uh, and that was. So I grew up in the sixties. What, what, what kind? What was it like in your in your house? Were were there frequent? discussions, salons, that kind of thing? Yeah, they were part of the New York intellectual world, and I met people who I later realized were sort of famous Like people. who? Lionel Trilling, the great literary critic who taught at Columbia, Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher. They were all friends. Uh, Alan Bloom, who ended yeah, up here at Chicago, yeah, became very famously, famous. Yeah. And, but I, of course, was whatever I was, 10 or 12 or 14 years old, and you know, I knew a little about, bit about who they were, and I was sort of interested in some of what they might have written, but I wasn't that precocious, honestly. So I was mostly focused, as I say, on sports. Um, yeah, was, politically, was, poli- was politics a yeah, frequent topic? Yes, the one forgets back then how much New York, how separate New York was from Washington. You know, I once talked to my father, I think, once told me he never had, he didn't know any congressman, any senator. He'd ne- he came to Washington a couple of times as a tourist, honestly, never came to Washington. We, come growing up, went once or twice to see the monuments. Uh, he knew Pat Moynihan well. It was one of the first people he knew who actually. And you worked on one of his campaigns. Had a, yes, a Moynihan and, and Kennedy Johnson had a not very high level assistant secretary of labor, but some position and then got well known. Um, and so that was one of the first people I think my parents knew who was in government. And then he left in 65. But I think my father said once when he, he was called to some meeting in the Nixon White House, maybe in about 70, um, you know, one of these, let's have 12 people over for an hour and talk big ideas kind of. I don't know, but um, I think it may have been the first time he'd been in the White House. So the the, the separation of New York and Washington was much greater than than it was later. There were met, you know, and so people think that. So growing up, we talked politics and ideas a lot, but I was not like an intimate follower of who was doing what in the Republican caucus and the. And did you have a? Did you? Did how did your philosophy emerge? I was sort of. um, I was always contrarian. 
And I read, uh, of course, I was influenced by my parents, Public Interest, the magazine my father started in 65. I read Commentary Magazine, which was on the left, and then moved to the right. Um, but actually, I, I read National Review, which came home to our house. I think Bill Buckley gave my parents a complimentary Did you know Buckley? Subscription. I knew him, got to know him later, mm-hmm. but not as a kid. Uh, well, I met him once or twice. And I was very um, sort of charmed by Buckley and just he tapped into a certain contrarian streak in me. And I would say in the 60s, I saw many of my classmates and teachers, for that matter, at Collegiate, the, the private school I went to in New York, were, you know, left, new left, fashionably left, whatever you want to say. And I guess I rebelled against them um, rather than against my parents. I say. And so I, I probably moved a little bit to the right of my parents, even in the sense of being a critic of the new left and hostile to the new left. And at that point, I was, as I say, a Humphrey Jackson Democrat, um, in 72, my first election I voted in, on the other hand, I was for Jackson. I worked hard for Scoop in Massachusetts. You know, that, I mean, all I did is hand out leaflets and stuff. I had a very low-level volunteer job, but it was the beginning of my successful political career, I believe, in 72. <laughs> the Massachusetts primary was kind of important back then. It was earlier. Yes, I guess, right uh-huh. after, right yeah, after New Hampshire. Do yeah. you remember this? And I think – so I, we all thought Scoop had a chance. McGovern had upset Muskie in New Hampshire, so it was a wide-open race. And surely McGovern wasn't going to be the nominee. That would be ridiculous. And so we thought Scoop had a chance. And Scoop ran seventh in the Massachusetts primary behind Wilbur Mills. And so that was the beginning of my successful well, electoral know, we, career, which has just gone from one height to another over the last 40 we years. We had Carl Bernstein on here a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that he uh, said was that um, little noted in the uh, about the 72 uh, race was that the Nixon team were doing everything they could to help McGovern uh, because they thought he'd be the easiest candidate to beat. Jackson was, uh, I mean, a, a principal feature of his candidacy was anti-communism. Uh, was that what attracted you to him? Yeah, and he was to the right of Nixon and Kissinger in some way, a critic of detente, a defender of human rights and of sort of, let's call it morality somewhat in foreign policy, you know, not, not simply making deals with dictators. And Nixon was more of a, let's make a deal with the Soviets, maybe in retrospect, that was a, a intelligence strategy, maybe he took it too far. But I, I was sort of more on the, shouldn't we be standing up to the communist side of things? Anyway, but during all this time, honestly, I was in high school, then I was in college, I was studying political philosophy. I wasn't terribly involved politically. I, I In 76, when I was halfway through grad school, but again, it was more in political philosophy than in practical political things, I did take a summer off to work for Pat Moynihan, who yes. was a good friend of my uh, parents. And uh, when he ran for the uh, Democratic nomination for Senate in New York, in, he beat Bella Abzug by 9,000 votes out of 2 million. So it was a surprisingly very close race. People uh, forget how often you know this very, very well, how often these big political careers begin with a you know, very close result, right? It's now, Bella pe- never made that journey from left to right. Yes, now, Bella was solidly on the left. One <laughs> of the things I did, this is pre-internet, pre-everything, was go to the New York Public Library and go to the microfiche, I think it was, and look up things she had done in the 40s and 50s, which were genuinely, let's say, fellow traveler, defense, went to Prague to defend, you know, the, the communist regime there in 51. And I think we managed to release some of that stuff and maybe it made the difference, I don't know. So, Or I, else maybe it made it close, you never know. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. So anyway, I did my little bit to help Pat Moynihan become – he then beat Jim Buckley. I stayed out of the general election because I rather liked Jim Buckley, the incumbent who had won in that amazing three-way race in 1970. I'd volunteered in that for about three days just wandering because I knew someone who was working for him. Um, so I was sort of vaguely involved in politics. But 
honestly, my, my own personal interest was much more political philosophy, and I thought I would become an academic, and I did for a few years at Penn and then at Harvard, and then, like so many people, came to Washington. Bill Bennett became Reagan's uh, education secretary at the beginning of the second term in 85, called me up and said, hey, come to Washington for a year, be a special assistant, write speeches, that kind of stuff. And like so many people, I came to Washington for a year, and 30 years later, I'm still there. How uh, We'll return to... Uh the things that attracted you uh, to Scoop Jackson in the context of today's uh, administration and today's politics. Um, but how'd you come to know Bill Bennett? Um, he was kind of a Yale guy. You were a Harvard guy, right? What was it? He was Williams, I think, and then Harvard. I, I knew him rad, sort of slightly randomly from, I don't know, I, I guess you'd say conservative-ish uh, sort of academic enterprises. He was involved in that a little in the late 70s. He knew my parents a little bit. Kind of mutual friends, and I guess. Uh, but the, this is actually funny. So this is a little like you, I think, the transition from journalism, in my case, the yeah. academy to politics. The reason I got to know was in the summer of 80, so I'm at the Kennedy School. I, I teach political philosophy at Penn. They recruit me to go to the Kennedy School where I'm going to teach political philosophy for public policy students. It turned out to be probably not a great idea, but it was very nice to me. It was a pleasant place to be for a couple of years. <laughs> Summer of 84, they say, I think at the Kennedy School, someone says, why don't you go, you know, it's the Reagan administration. You, I was pro-Reagan. See what they're, maybe there's an interesting article to be written about sort of how they're doing. I don't know who, who's doing well, who's not doing well. So I went to Washington for about a uh, for just to do a bunch of interviews, really, in '84, a few stretches of you know several days. I didn't move there or anything. And I did a piece, which I suppose someone could find if they wanted to uh, today. On I think it was three. It was, well, so the, th- the thesis was there's a middle ground between being a bomb thrower who blows oneself up, and Reagan had some of those in his first term, and doesn't and don't effectively change anything, and being a someone who just accommodates to the bureaucracy and to the permanent government and doesn't make change, which a lot of the conservatives were accusing parts of the Reagan administration of being. And my thesis was you could do both. I mean, you could, you could, you could be an intelligent you know, change agent, as we say today, and um, not blow yourself up, cause trouble, uh, make real changes, et cetera. And so I found three people I thought were success stories in that respect. Uh, one was Jim Miller, who later became OMB director, but was then, mm-hmm. I think, FTC head, a kind of a deregulator, free market type. Um, the second, I'm now blanking on who it was even. And the third was Bill Bennett, who had been head of the National Endowment for the Humanities. So these were all people running pretty small, you know, second-tier agencies. But, but I thought doing interesting, interesting things from yes, a conservative Yes, from a conservative point of view and doing them successfully so that actually making changes, not just complaining about the bureaucracy or about the media and stuff. And so I wrote one article that said, look, here's how they figured out how to work with and through the bureaucracy, not just to scream and yell at it. Here's how they figured out how to work. Bennett was pretty good at working the media, though the media yeah, didn't I would agree say with so. him. I mean, yeah. he was a pretty flamboyant uh, right. uh, conservative. Yes, but also managed to avoid, you know, to say scandals and blowing himself yeah. up and so forth. So I wrote that piece, and that's when I spent some time with Bennett, and we got to know each other. And then six months later, when he got promoted to education secretary, he said, well, you, you're interested in practical politics, why don't you? And the Kennedy School encourages that kind of thing. So why don't you come to Washington? So that's when we first came. It's funny how those stories go. There was a guy in a town here who just passed away, Jack Fuller, who was the editor and then publisher of the Chicago Tribune. When Jack was a young reporter, he had gone to Yale Law School. He'd come from a journalistic family, went to Yale Law School, and then came back and worked at the City News Bureau, got a job at the Tribune. And Edward Levy was appointed Attorney General, the president of the University of Chicago, at the, in the middle of the Watergate, in the wake of uh, the Watergate 
crisis to try and restore the integrity of the Justice Department. Fuller was assigned to go down and talk to him and write a profile of him. And Levy read the profile and asked him to come to Washington with him based on that conversation and that profile. And uh, so these are the things that change change lives, these kinds of conversations. I always tell young people that, you know, uh, especially these days, you know, they try to plan their careers, and people do that a lot more than I think we did in our generation. And sometimes it's a wise thing to do. And some some as some professions, you do that. I mean, obviously, law, medicine, you you know, they're much more of a sort of set career path. And if you want to become an orthopedic surgeon, you have to do A, B, C. You can't just sort of whiff into that, you know. One hopes. Yeah, one hope. Yeah, yes. maybe, right. I don't know how far this deregulation will go, but I'm hoping that that continues to good, be the case. Good point. But um, – but in our kinds of things, you do sort of move horizontally and ran, somewhat randomly, yeah. right? And I think that's a – I personally like that aspect of Washington and that aspect of politics. And that, but So I always tell young people, you know, what should I do if I want to become a political person? And, you know, and I, there are a million things you could do. And the main thing is to find a good boss. I think that's extremely important when you learn a yeah. lot. Find a good boss who will hopefully be successful and bring you with him and also from whom you'll learn and who you'll enjoy working for. Uh, but don't overthink. Anyway, my, my big picture on these things is don't don't overplan your career and basically do do what you like doing and try to do it well and keep your eyes open for opportunities. Obviously, but uh, but a lot of it yeah. is very unpredictable, as you know. Well, it's a real privilege to be able to follow your passion and make a living doing it. Absolutely, and I mean, we were lucky. It's always you a revelation to me. Absolutely, and, it's know, a revelation people, to right. me that you hear all. You're a, you're a baseball fan. You hear these ball players saying, "I can't believe I get." Paid to now, I actually can't believe what they do get paid to do it now. But <laughs> uh, but it's fun to, to it's great if you can pursue your passion and find and find even if it's you know you may find at the beginning it's not very remunerative, but um, it makes for a happier life. And the other thing I found, at least, is I think it helped me somewhat in Washington. I was behind a lot of people. I hadn't worked on the Hill. I came to Washington when I was 32, 33. And, you know, a lot of people get there when they're 21 and, you know, get to work networking and building their resume and all that. But I think it helped me that I had studied political philosophy and history. Even a lot of it wasn't terribly relevant in any direct way. Uh, Taught for a few years, which you get a certain kind of skills doing that. Um, and so I encourage undergraduates in particular, you know, study what you want to study and study something right. important and don't necessarily feel that every summer you have to be an intern somewhere or something. And if you want to learn, if you like classical literature, learn Greek and study it for two or three years. It won't hurt you and it might help you a lot. And I think a lot of people our age who've done pretty well in journalism or government or whatever, they didn't, you know, start off as, you know, incredibly hardworking, you know, gophers on the hill at age 19, right? Yeah. They had a lot of other interests, you know. Yeah. Charles, well, Krauthammer, I mean, look, I Charles think- Krauthammer went to medical school and George Will went to graduate school in political philosophy. Just thinking of the people I Another know. Another great um, baseball fan. And a huge, great yes. Cubs fan. And a great Cubs fan. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, no, I think, you know, if you... So be a baseball fan. To, that, is the, that is the message, right? That's the key. Right? That's obviously the key. That's the key, key here. Right? The, um, no, I think uh, being a great generalist being someone with kind of broad intellectual curiosity is to me the key to being a good journalist and in a sense it's also the key to being a good office holder and a good policy maker uh so i i agree with you uh there talk about reagan you arrived there in the age of reagan reagan's name gets invoked a lot now um you know and i think sometimes it gets invoked uh without real understanding of who he was and what he represented. You know, people, um, 
I'm on CNN a lot. My colleague Jeffrey Lord, who worked for Reagan, likes to invoke Reagan all the time in defense of Donald Trump. But uh, that's a big gap. That's a big leap. Well, it is a big leap. I mean, just in a very simple, commonsensical way. This is Reagan was a guy who benefited from being a minor celebrity, not like Trump, actually less of one than Trump. But then spent 10 years, you know, uh, educating himself on conservative thought. It turns out he read a lot of books and articles and gave speeches. Then became governor of California, not a trivial thing for eight years, mm-hmm. ran for president in a primary and lost, and then became president. He had a lot of actual governing experience and a lot of a deep understanding of a certain ideology. Maybe that was limited and people can criticize the ideology, but he really had a basis, a uh, theory that informed his governing, a theory of foreign policy with respect to the Soviet Union, a theory about free markets, a theory about a lot of things, constitution and the Supreme Court. Uh, Trump really has none of that. So I, I think both in personal character, but also just in sort of groundedness, Reagan is really one of our more grounded presidents when he came to office, not unlike President Obama in the sense that he had spent a lot of time, agree or disagree, thinking about what he thought was wrong or deficient about the current situation, how things needed to be fixed. Yeah. For my generation of conservatives, Reagan was so big just because conservatism had been a protest movement, you know, either a gadfly-type protest movement, Bill Buckley running for mayor of New York in 65. Yes, 65, yeah. Uh, Goldwater getting crushed in 64. I That was a little before my time in terms of being involved, but I'm not sure I would have been for Goldwater against Johnson, honestly. But um, And then in the 70s, of course, Nixon, you know, sort of a conservative, but sort of a operative, you might say, and blows up in any case, and it looks kind of hopeless. So that when Reagan won in 80, the sort of surprise and the opportunity – was amazing. And then that he governed successfully. I mean, again, people can agree or disagree, but re-elected, his vice president gets elected. Uh, we win the Cold War by the end of that decade, pretty good economic performance. I mean, that was just a huge deal. I, I You know, people now take it, well, of course, you know, there was the Reagan era, and that went okay, and then but that had to be corrected by Clinton, or whatever people want to say. But, of course, it wasn't obvious that it was going to go okay. People thought it might just be a fiasco and chaos. Yeah, anyone. well, and there was a... Yeah, and there I were mean, there elements was, there of that, abs- of course. But there was, uh, there was, when Reagan got elected, a lot of the apprehension... I mean, he was... A, in, in a big agent of change. I mean, he was the line of demarcation between New Deal liberalism and uh, and the next uh, epic right. in our uh, history. And there was a and there was a lot of concern about that. He represented big change, but as you say, it was um, it was a change that had he had thought through. It was and there, it came with a respect for sort of institutions and history. Uh, so uh, it seems to me distinguished him uh, from what we have today. But in honor of President Reagan and free markets, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. I'll be right back with Bill Crystal. You, you talked about that piece that you wrote that led to your uh, relationship with Bill Bennett. Uh, just on Reagan, one more uh, minute. It seemed to me that um, he showed um, a pragmatism uh, that was that that was consistent with his conservatism, but Reagan's big, uh, you know, the, the the philosophy that people always share of governance was if I can get eighty percent of what I want, uh, I'll go for that. And he made deals and he made compromises, uh, not, compromises that I'm not sure would be accepted today. Uh, by some 
who consider themselves conservatives, but in this sort of uh, populist movement within the Republican Party, within the evangelical movement, and so on. Uh, would how would Reagan have fared uh, in today's political climate if he approached politics the way he did? I think I mean, you were, I think incredibly he, skilled guy. He, well, he was so skilled; it's hard to maybe he could have educated people. To I mean, I say he uh, he campaigned for the sake of governing. I mean, he wanted to govern the country and he wanted to change things, and that's pretty different from some politicians today who campaign for the sake of making a statement or and who then get in office and just think all they're supposed to do is keep making statements. Trump's case, he's both less ideological than Reagan and less interested in governing, which is sort of a weird combination, you know. But people, uh, when Trump won, I had some friends who were much more pro-Trump, obviously, than I was, and they were so excited. You know, this is comparable to the Reagan Revolution, one of them told me. And I said, look, the Reagan Revolution was not winning in 1980. That was important and necessary and, uh, you know, impressive. The Reagan Revolution was governing for eight years and maybe 12, if you give him some credit for Vice President Bush, and what he did in those years. And again, people can agree or disagree with what he did, but that was the accomplishment. And I do think Trump really thinks I – mean, you see this so much when he's, he's now governing, but he still thinks he's campaigning. Well, in fact – And I'm very I'll struck by that psychologically, today, you know. He called some of his supporters – I think to signify that he's still uh, the man, he, he called some of his supporters over to the White House – today, congressional supporters who had been early supporters of his, and talked to them as serially about how he did in their districts, uh, you know, and um, there is this sense that winning the election was sort of the goal. Right. Um, It's sort of a a weird kind of bizarro world uh, version of the candidate where at the end of the movie, Robert Redford gets elected and says, what do we do now? Yeah, I don't recall Reagan talking much about the 80 election once it was over. And it doesn't mean you have to, you shouldn't forget about it. He, he rewarded supporters and, you know, preferred them to people who hadn't supported him. All that's normal politics, obviously. He also reached out, however, and his chief of staff, Jim Baker, had been, of course, Bush's campaign chairman. That's a pretty amazing, unusual fact, I would say, and, and shows something about that Reagan understood about, uh, about governing. But the Trump thing is really, uh, just recently he tweeted, he tweets everything all the time, but he, it was one of his attacks on the intelligence community. And it was something like, you know, the terrible FBI and uh, NSA, I think it was, are leaking uh, against, uh, you know, against uh, illegally leaking and that has to stop. And he really thought, has he not thought for a minute that he is president of the United States? If he thinks there's illegal leaking going on from, an et- from the FBI, which is supervised by the Justice Department, which is supervised by an attorney general he just appointed, Jeff Sessions, or the NSA, which is, supported, I suppose, supervised by the Director of National Intelligence and Dan Coats, another appointee of his who's about to be confirmed uh, next week, I think. And probably wondering whether he did the right thing. Yeah. I mean, if he thinks there's illegal le- leaking going on, if he's president, he should do something about it. He should say this. Yeah. But but he, he doesn't even think. This is what really I find sort of jolting about Trump. He doesn't even think as president. He, he somehow never internalized. You were there with President Obama, and, and I'd be curious to know what you think, I mean, how this happened for him, but uh, in 08, 09. But he has not internalized the fact that he is now president of the United yeah. States. And he has to think differently than if you're running for president or even in a transition, sort of jockeying a little bit with the, inter- the current administration about when you're going to take over and how. He's president. And I, I'm really shocked by the degree to which he and the people around him, I would say, incidentally, haven't internalized that. I came into the White House. I was domestic policy advisor to Dan Quill and then chief of staff after a few months. That. So it was much not at the highest. I mean, chief of staff was senior staff, obviously, assistant to the president, but still not in the highest, highest levels. But still, the degree to which it was hammered into us that you are now in the White House. 
You are not on a campaign. You are not in a business. You are not having fun as a professor or popping off on things. You've got to be careful in what you say, both for ethics reasons, but also just because people might interpret what you say as the policy of the country. I remember being told you go to little, you go to parties, you picnic with your friends here in Washington, you know, you'll go to some dinner or something. And not that you shouldn't have a free fun conversation at all, but you do need to be careful. You can't repeat things that were said here. You you know, you never know what's going to be taken out of context and publicized. And this is before social media, incidentally, so it's much worse today. And I, and I remember taking that pretty seriously. I didn't and, – and the idea that you just kind of wander out, Kellyanne Conway or something, and give interviews every three hours on cable news. And if Ivanka Trump's being attacked, you're going to – you know, and I don't really blame her for this in some serious way, I guess, or jokingly defend her line of clothing but i mean that is it is inappropriate yeah and if you have internalized the notion that you are now working in the white house not on a campaign and not for the trump organization you wouldn't do that you know yeah, except and nothing for that. clicks except, nothing clicks in their head i well, think everything flows from the top in a white house uh you worked in an administration in the administration of george hw bush he had been a congressman. He had been ambassador to China, ambassador to the U.N., head of the CIA and vice president and chairman, by the way, of the Republican National Committee. There was nobody who – there may not have been anybody ever elected president who had more institutional experience uh, than he did and obviously a high, very high regard for it. And he was the son of a senator. So he was steeped in institutional history and – had a regard for it. And I'm sure that that was something that he insisted on uh, among all the people who uh, who worked for him. My notion on Kellyanne's um, infomercial for Ivanka's clothing line was that she was speaking to an audience of one. And for Donald Trump, I'm sure he found that, uh, you know, very appealing that she would take up the cudgel for his for his daughter. So, you know, the, the man at the top or the woman at the top, someday there will be, uh, sets the tone uh, for a White House. And I think this White House so far reflects Donald Trump. And, you know, you're talking about a guy who, quite different from George H.W. Bush, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, and others, uh, has absolutely no grounding in uh, government. And one of the reasons he was elected, Bill, was because people wanted that. They wanted someone who would blow it all up and kick Washington in the ass. And he said, I would do that. The problem is you also have to make the thing run. And be responsible and, and accountable to the public, which is not something you have to do if you're running a private business or even running a campaign in some ways, though there are FEC rules and stuff. But still, it's very different from being in the White House. Yeah, no, he's the – look, he's the – just as a – again, leaving aside one's judgment about him as a true – just analytical matter. He's the first obviously non-elected official since Eisenhower to win a nomination, let alone become president. Eisenhower's general of the yeah, army. So the first one – Saved, and, uh, saved uh, democracy. And from, Hoover had been a cabinet secretary. So you really – in modern times, there's never been anyone – well, never in American history has there been anyone who became president prior to Trump who hadn't had either elective military office or, elective, or military yeah. or cabinet, I guess. And uh, and so that is a huge deal. It doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. It should never happen. It doesn't mean that in this case necessarily it was the wrong judgment by people. But um, but again, the premise would then have to be. I mean, it seems to me if I were I don't know some became head of 
General Motors, something I know nothing about. I've never really worked in the private sector in any big way, except universities, but not in the for-profit sector in a big way. Don't know anything about the auto industry and et cetera. Don't know much about General Motors itself as an organization. Excuse me, if I was suddenly magically became CEO of General Motors, I would spend quite a lot of time learning about General Motors, learning about how things had gone in the past. I might want to change a lot of things, but sort of, but how much more so for the presidency of the United States. But Trump seems not to have really thought about that. He seems to think he kind of knows what he wants to do. I don't think he actually expected to be elected. Well, I, I really be. don't think he did. I think this was an exercise in branding. And uh, he overshot the runway. Uh, and I think he delighted in winning. But I don't think he contemplated much the implications of it. And that's one of the reasons, you know, you people will say, and you might, that Democrats are... Uh, throwing sand in the in the in the machine here to try and slow down his uh, appointments but they've also they've come slowly they've come without the proper vetting and i think that's in part a reflection of um lack of um planning that ref- reflects this notion that he wasn't going to win yeah, I have no problem with the Democrats opposing his appointees and slowing down things to some degree. I, I think the main criticism I would have of the left, not that they're really asking for my criticism or advice, is they're a little bit— No, but they expect it. It's, it's a good point. And they, and they, and they, respect, and they respect it in a certain—they a certain, they won't admit it, of course, but they, they welcome it because they know it. I, I, in my heart, I'm doing my best for them. The, uh, they should be a little more discriminate, I'd say. And I mean, there's a little way which constant hysteria is a problem as you lose the forest for the trees and you lose the kind of really, no, I don't disagree really with big that. problems I mean, it, it, they with did, the little they, ones. I mean, he can do something stylistically that's annoying, and I don't like it either. That's very different from you know, endangering our foreign policy or really inappropriately doing things in the White House and so forth. Yes. You know? Well, I mean, the fact is that uh, some, of those, the, some of the president's nominations passed rather swiftly. Right. Uh, General Mattis's uh, uh, right. appointment as defense secretary. Even Tillerson had more problem, it seemed, from the, from the Republicans, from Marco right. Rubio in particular, uh, than Democrats, uh, General Kelly. Um, and I think partly w- – Democrats found it reassuring that these s- people of solidity were going to fill these positions, even if they didn't necessarily agree with them uh, on a bunch of things. Before, I don't want to lose the thread of your life, though, because uh, you you worked for for uh, a vice president who was uh, um, sometimes the object of derision, uh, Dan Quayle, and. Uh, Tell me about that experience. I, I know that you were in the um, in the middle of a really important battle, the one with Murphy Brown, uh, when you were uh, when in ninety two. That yes. was yes, that's kind of faded into the mist. So I joined. I mean, I had been Bennett's chief. Of, I'd come to work for Bennett, I became his chief of staff because the chief of staff moved over to be general counsel. I did that for a couple of two and a half years. Ran a, fail, a hopeless Senate campaign in '88 in Maryland against Sarbanes, who was a totally safe incumbent. Uh, but I learned a lot from that. That's another thing. Well, if we're just talking about biography, I was not a campaign guy really. I helped. I mean, the issues deputy issues director for Moynihan, as I said in '76, that wasn't really the mechanics of a campaign. I learned a huge amount having to run a campaign, and it was a kind of hopeless one and a pretty ineffectual one. We we got our the same vote that everyone got got against Sarbanes, 38, 39 percent in Maryland. Bush won Maryland, though, in, in 88. So that's kind of amazing how much 
the electoral map has changed, right? Yes. In a quarter century. Um, so we didn't drag him down, at least. Um, but I, I did that. So then this I was... for Alan Keyes? Yes, Alan Keyes, my roommate from yes. grad school, so who has since gone a little bit off the rails. But He anyway. came out here for about six months and tried yes, to get elected Yes, he helped you guys. He helped, he helped, President, he helped uh, President Obama. So to, he has a kind of zealot-like no, uh, character of showing up at these big moments, right? Nobody got under Barack Obama's skin more than... Alan Keyes. In that debate, right? Yeah. Well, in the debates, I mean, they were, um, they were, shall we say, vituperative. Yeah. But uh, also, he almost had a fist fight on the street with oh, Alan Keyes. And, and, you know, as you know, this pre- uh, President Obama was pretty slow to anger. Uh, but, boy, Keyes just... Well, he's very smart. He's a very great... He's a good speaker. He had gone a little... Uh, so they got much more extreme. And in '88, he had been—he was regarded as a rising star in the Republican Party. They recruited him to run in Maryland. He had been a Gene Kirkpatrick protege at the State Department. He'd been Assistant Secretary of State. I mean, he'd had a responsible job in the government. And uh, I thought it would be fun because uh, we'd do our best. We would lose. To, he was recruited late. The, the original candidate, I can't remember who it was, dropped out. I think he was ill or something. And so it was kind of a hopeless thing anyway. And it was a Democratic state. And Sarbanes was a very popular incumbent. But I thought it would be good for Alan. Maybe he'd get a job in the next administration and, you know, right in the future. And I'd learn something. And we did our best. I would do our best. So I actually left the Reagan administration, took a you know, huge pay cut. To, not that it was so big in the first place, being in government, to, just to almost on a volunteer basis, run this campaign for four or five months. Um, and I, I learned a ton. I do tell young people, you really learn a lot having yeah. to go through a campaign. It's like real government. You, you can talk who, yourself into in government, talk yourself into, I'm doing great. We're making a difference. Who knows who's really making a difference? You know, Campaign, there's like a real date where you see what happens, right? And so there's a real judgment that there isn't in a lot of, a lot of the rest of our public life. It also life. Give, it infuses them with a real sense of urgency that um, is energizing. Right. And then you deal with the public and you realize it's not, it's much more, the public's impression and understanding of politics is so much different from what you might think sitting around at Penn or Harvard and stuff. So, Or even in Washington. Or especially yeah, maybe in Washington. So it was a great experience for me. And I, and I, Alan, look, I respect Alan. I, I'm sorry he sort of went down the path he did. And, but yes, 2004 was his, that was his great, uh, I knew he would annoy. Uh, uh, President Obama, though, or th- then I guess State Senator Obama, just because, um, yeah, Alan is is, and I think I think Obama says this in his memoir that he sort of like his his advisors urged him to kind of just ignore. I mean, he's going to win by fifty points. What was the point? You know? Right. So just ignore Keys, and he just, but he just got so annoyed at him I, at the debate that he kind of lashed out and made I it more, so, made it more of a story than it would have been. I think is that I right? remember so clearly watching the news uh, one night, and they were covering. I think it was some Hispanic parade. And um, there's footage of Barack Obama jabbing his finger into Alan Key's chest and and essentially uh, menacing him. And I call him and I said, you know, what the hell is this? I said, you know, we're up by 50. <laughs> I said, what, what are you doing? He said, I just can't help it, man. That guy gets under my skin. He just really... Well, if I was listening to this, this will be gratifying to him, I guess. Yes. But yeah. anyway, it did not derail Barack Obama's he did, political uh, career. He, no, he ended up winning by about that much. So <laughs> right. um, that that was that was enough. Yes, that was exactly, enough. Exactly. So I worked for Quail, and um, so I, so Quail had called. So then I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I might. I actually was talking to one or two universities about coming back to teaching and thinking I may be a think tank kind of thing. And I got a couple of inquiries. I guess I people had heard of you know heard 
they knew of me a little bit. I'd worked for Bennett, you know, chief of staff at a second tier agency, but still Bennett was well regarded. And, um, and Dan Quayle called me, whom I knew very slightly. He'd been on the education committee in the Senate. So we had test, Bennett had testified before and we'd worked a little on a couple of things together. And uh, would I be interested in coming over and being his domestic policy advisor? And we met and we got along and I said yes. So I came to the White House as domestic policy advisor to the vice president, became his chief of staff about five months later because the, the gentleman who started off that way was really had been hired. It turned out I didn't realize this kind of to manage the trend, help Quail get going. He was an older guy, you know, sort of new Washington, get it stabilized. And then after this pretty disastrous campaign Quail had had in 88 and uh, – and then, so then I took over as chief of staff. So I was chief of staff to Quayle for three and a half years. It was it was a great privilege and honor, as you know, to work in the White House. And it was exciting. It was a very mixed ride. It was a, I'm proud to have been part of that administration. We, of course, got clobbered in 92. I, as I say, part of my successful political career, I, I signed on to an administration that had won with 54% of the vote in 1988. And by the time I was through in 1992, Bush had 38% of the vote, one of the most rapid declines and. American history. It's a little hard to, in, in retrospect, it's a good lesson about politics that, like, why exactly did people turn against Bush so much? He wasn't that bad a president, you no, know? He, you know he was. But somehow, 12 years was a long time. And, and actually, the one thing that made me, I was wrong about a lot this past year, as we many of us were, but I always thought Trump had a chance in the general election. And I used to say, one in three, one in four chance. And I worried, I mean, I worried I was not for either of them, but I I would say sometimes I, can't, I think the Clinton campaign is plenty. Is they need more of a positive message. They they need somehow to explain that she will bring about change too. And the one thing I learned in '92 was the power of the sentiment of change. I mean, it, I don't think Bush was did a bad job as president. The 12 years of Reagan Bush had a lot of good things happen for America, but people wanted change. And the one thing I, I learned then is you can scream till you're blue in the face that Clinton is has problems and that things are better than you think and that it's better to reward Bush for winning the Cold War than to say, thank you, you won the Cold War, now we want to focus on health care and education. But nonetheless, if people are in that mood, they will vote for change. And I think yeah. that was really true. In Things that, are better than you think is not a very good approach. It is a terrible. It's, it may be true, but it's sometimes, but it's a, it's a bad approach. And I do think that in 2016, Trump benefited so much from being against Bush and then Clinton, the establishment, and from being the guy who promised change in a change environment. That came screaming through in the exit polls. I mean, the one dimension that he dominated was we'll bring change to Washington. And that was among the various qualities that people were offered in the exit poll. That was the quality that they most were looking for. I think he was in the 80s right. uh, in that uh, particular quality. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with Bill Crystal. One more, uh, one more question on Quayle, um, and I know you weren't you were you weren't on board during the campaign, no. right, Nate? Yeah, but his whole career was really defined by one moment in one debate uh, when Lloyd Benson uh, uh, ridiculed him for suggesting that he was in that he he wasn't that he had more experience than John F Kennedy did when John F Kennedy became president because the question about Quayle was was he kind of callow and shallow and uh ill prepared to be one heartbeat away from uh the presidency did he ever recover uh from that moment it always gets replayed every 4 years when you see election uh, right. debate coverage they say well this is what you want to avoid a moment like this <laughs> right I mean, I think he had been wounded already by the rollout, which was 
not done well. I don't think the Bush people did him a favor. They Bush personally kept the choice of quail from his top advisors. He wanted to surprise them. There's a lot of you know, psychological stuff going on at that point, I think, of who's in charge. And I'm not just going to let Jim Baker tell me that it should be Bob Dole or Pete Medici or some sort of more established person. I'm going to go young. And I think Ailes and Teeter were for that. There was, you know, after eight years of Reagan, you wanted a new generation. Quayle was a very successful politician. Quayle had defeated a Democrat in 76 for the House, an incumbent, and then Birch Bayh, the incumbent Democrat for the Senate in 80, and won the biggest re- uh, election margin ever, I think, for the se- for any Senate race, maybe any race. In 86. In, in 86, I co- you know, So I people covered- forget. I mean, this was a guy picked in 88 as young, young, up and coming, one in Indiana, not a safe Republican state, a lot of labor votes for Quayle. He had worked with Ted Kennedy on an education and labor bill in the early 80s, but a hawk on foreign policy. And the, the launch was bad. The debate thing was disastrous. And I, he certainly didn't recover during the campaign. And I say we, I probably didn't do a very good job, as good a job as I should have, of helping him recover as vice president. It's hard to recover as vice president. The thing I took from this is if you're a governor, you can have a very rocky start. You're still governor, and you can do things, and three years later, you can say, okay, look, I had a rocky start, but let's look at the unemployment numbers. Let's look at what I did here in this area. Well, let's look at what I did in that area. If you're a senator, you can have a rocky start. Ooh, I kind of screwed up, but look, here, I passed this legislation two years later. You can change your image. Bill Bennett had a very rocky start as education secretary in 85, kind of popped off on a couple of things and got beat up in the papers and stuff. Even there, he was able to spend three years being a reformer and giving more serious speeches and putting out some publications and documents. We didn't have much legislative success in the second term of Reagan, but he left as a respected guy. With vice president, it's so hard. Yeah, what to, do you do? What do you do? And and we probably, maybe we weren't imaginative enough. There was no, of course, internet then, no social media. And so also you were sort of confined to working through the established media, which was not terribly friendly to him. He made a couple of mistakes as vice president. They got magnified. It's a good lesson. Uh, you've been through this a million times. I mean, of the the Im- once you have an image, you know it's hard to shake the image, and anything you do that fits into the image, right, just deepens it and reaffirms it. And so, once every nine months, Dan Quayle would make a gaffe. I believe in most politicians make a gaffe every nine months, right? But if they think you're a bright guy, okay, fine, he made a gaffe once. If you're the guy who's was defined by the Dukak by the Benson moment, then every nine months that gaffe becomes the only news about you. F- for a couple of uh, years. well, Jerry Murphy. Ford was another example of that. You know, he right. he he was he was a, a like an all American athlete, and um, he stumbled, I guess, coming off a platform or something, and that became, or maybe he didn't. I but Chevy Chase sort of right. parodied him, and this no, notion of this bumbler uh, sort of took hold and hurt him. Uh, you know, a guy who was really quite experienced and accomplished in politics. Yeah, I mean, I think if. You, we fixed it a little. I mean, Quayle did well in the debate with Gore in 92, very much held his own. Probably even, I'd say, won it kind of narrowly. I think Gore was playing safe because Clinton was ahead and they didn't want to sort of make news out of the vice presidential debate. But Quayle was pretty aggressive and pretty effective. The Murphy-Brown speech, which people now remember, yeah, talk about laughingly, that. was actually— Did you write that speech? I helped with it. Actually, we had a couple other people work on it. Quayle worked on it a lot himself. It's a serious speech about family breakup. Probably it was a mistake. I wouldn't have gotten all the attention if we hadn't used the— the, the TV show and the fact that she was having a child uh, out of wedlock is the kind of hook. But, of course, it also going to California and giving that speech when Hollywood is all excited about Clinton and hostile to Bush and Quayle was probably – it was a double-edged sword. I think it – Got might, a lot of attention. It got a lot of attention. And you know what's interesting? I think – and I think you can see this and Clinton discusses this maybe or this is discussed in the accounts of the Clinton campaign. The, the Democrats wanted to ridicule Quayle. That's what they did naturally. You know, that was came easy to them. 
Clinton, who's a very smart political character uh, and was trying to be a centrist, was kind of a centrist Democrat, did not let his staff ridicule Quayle and gave a speech about a week later in which he said, look, we all know that Dan Quayle is just, you know, don't take him seriously. But you know what? In this speech, there are a few things that we do need to be worried about, and we do need to be worried about family structure. So Clinton saw that Quayle was onto something, and he didn't want the Democrats to be the party that just ridiculed any concern about kids growing up with one parent rather than two and about family breakup and structure and so forth. So Quayle was onto something there. But then we had this ridiculous thing with the uh, spelling uh, yes. B, where, was, yes. which, again, I take responsibility. I mean, I was the chief of staff. I was on that trip. You've been on these things a million times. For those it, who don't know, he uh, yeah, he, he's, he, he had a confrontation with a young with a woman sixth grader. in the <laughs> spelling bee. So he walks into – I mean, it's just you misspelled the word potato. So no good deed goes unpunished, right? He goes to New York, gives <laughs> a good speech, goes across the river to New Jersey to, to visit a school, a predominantly lower-income Hispanic school, which is part of a program, I think the Justice Department was running it with others and local people to help kids in schools that are, you know, obviously that are struggling. It was a totally good program, bipartisan and all that kind of stuff. It was a kind of just a feel, not a feel good thing would be one way of saying it, but it was an appropriate, Mm -hmm. I'd say the other way to say it, it was an appropriate recognition of people. Parents were volunteering there. I think we went in late, it was a long day and he was tired. Late in the afternoon, the parents were volunteering. I think it was one of these things where they were trying to get these parents to volunteer at the school and therefore help the kids learn English better and so forth. And we were walking in and it was, you've been in these things again a million times and the little briefing beforehand said, so well, the teacher's having a little spelling bee so you can you want to just participate for five minutes. It'd be a nice photo op. It'd be funny with the kids. <laughs> and I remember saying something like, well, is this all like work? I mean, this is, I mean, we're, the vice president's a little tired. I mean, this is all, like, done. I mean, this is on, you know, scripted, so to speak, you know. Oh, yeah, no problem. And, indeed, this little kid comes up, and the teacher calls him up, and the vice president's standing with the teacher, and spelled potato, and he spells potato. And as Quayle told me afterwards, he said, he looked at it, it looked right to him, but he looked down at the card they had given him. And the card they had given him was (laughs) P-O-T-A-T-O-E. And he said, gee, I think you're missing an E there, son. <laughs> because he looked at the card. And, and of course, and this was, I mean, this was our, probably our fault that we spent, of course, then, of course, the everything thing exploded. And by the time we got out the story that he had been given this card by some nice, by some person at the school, it just made a mistake, presumably. Um, you know, it was like too late. And it fit into the narrative. That's the other yeah. thing. So then that was about a week before the Democratic Convention, I think. Yeah. And so, of course, they had fun at the Democratic Convention with spelling jokes and stuff. And I guess, <laughs> I guess the vice president never quite re- recovered though on the other hand honestly he had a good campaign in 92 and i mean bush he had a horrible campaign in 88 and bush won by nine points i think he had a had a good debate with gore in 92 and we lost by what six points which tells so you it how tells much you the vp means totally i've always been yes i whenever people say vice presidential pick i always say i don't know you know maybe yeah. it matters sometimes I'm well pretty- it may have mattered i don't think it would have changed the outcome it obviously mattered for mccain you were a big proponent of Sarah Palin, though, right? Uh, some I was a proponent of taking Lieberman, and then they decided they couldn't do that. So I was for the bipartisan going for the. Uh, I think and, that hurt him, and that he didn't do but Lieberman. Well, that that would have been an interesting move. He couldn't apparently get him through the convention. They thought his advisors thought they couldn't get him through the convention. I believe he could. Uh, what do I know? I thought he could, looking from the outside, and I thought it was worth it. Once he did that, I thought, well, you might as well take a gamble because otherwise it's going to be pretty hopeless. And uh, Palin was, again, a sort of respected uh, governor. She had bipartisan support. She was kind of populist. I'd say in this way, we were, I was, you know, yeah. the interest in Palin she was, was a, a little ahead of the of curve. She was a of the Trump. And a forerunner of the Tea Party. This is a pre-Tea Party. So in that respect, I had an instinct that you, you needed after eight years of Bush 
something a little more that way. But uh, did it matter, do you think, at the end? Probably hurt him a little well, bit. Well, right? here's what I think. McCain's great strength was that he was sort of country first, that he would do the right thing for right. the country, regardless of politics. And when she stumbled and looked ill-prepared to be president, it looked as if he had made a political decision instead of putting the country first when he selected his VP. If he had chosen Lieberman, he that would have been a different story. Obviously. That was a different kind of gamble. Yeah, I think I didn't expect, you know, honestly, I expected Palin to do better. I, I think she is a little Trump-like in the sense that she thought she'd gotten very far in politics on charm and some real natural gifts, you know, person-to-person gifts and stuff, and uh, and being in sync with a lot of voters. And she thought you could make it through a presidential campaign just depending on those gifts. And she well, didn't work as, as hard as she might have. But you know, in the one case I think the VP made a difference, and no one actually talks about this in terms of 2016, is I actually think... Um, Trump's pick of Pence mm-hmm. probably was necessary. I mean, of course, in that close an election, everything makes a difference. But if you think about it, if one thinks about it, Pence so helped reassure Republicans and conservatives that who were very doubtful about Trump, but a lot of people I know personally were this way. It's like, you know what? Pence will be there. We'll get a good Supreme Court justice. It'll be less crazy. And, you know, we can sleep at night voting for Trump. I personally couldn't, no, but I they could. And help. I think it, with, it didn't, with, it didn't with, get with, him with any new votes, but it sort of consolidated the 46%. I think the consolidation of the 46% would have been harder with some, maybe someone else. And weirdly, conversely, Tim Kaine, whom I like personally, and he's my senator, and I thought was a good pick at the time, I've got to say, I don't think helped Clinton. I, don't I think, think it was it, ill-served, though. Uh, his debate performance that was, was terrible. out of character. And what was that and, about? That was the Clinton people telling him that he, he had to he be aggressive? I think he was instructed to be aggressive, and uh, he was completely out of character. The, time, the only times in that debate that he shone was when he was more reflective and in keeping with his own, uh, with his own personality. So let me ask you this about Pence, though. I've never had a presidency where so many people come up to me and say, you think he'll serve his four years? I keep reminding people, this isn't a parliamentary system, okay? He's got a four-year term. So, I, But uh, there is this lingering sense that for whatever reason, either through problems that he runs into, disinterest or something, that and there is this narrative that Republicans on the Hill, they're going to milk Trump for what they can get, whether it's the Supreme Court justice, the tax cuts, deregulation, and so on. But if he gets in trouble, they're not going to stand by him because they'd just as soon have Pence. I mean, I'm inclined to agree with what you said earlier, that that's a little too facile. It's not a parliamentary system. And how exactly does this impeachment thing work? You know, I mean, you do, it's kind of a complicated process to go through. It's not like you can have a vote of no confidence and suddenly, you know, Margaret Thatcher's out and someone else is in. So I'm a little dubious. But I would say in general, there were, I'd say a month, a month ago, a week before Trump was sworn in, among non-Trump enthusiastic, enthusiast Republicans, there was a certain feeling of, you know, maybe this won't be so terrible. I mean, we can, he'll be a little goofy and we won't like a lot of the things he says. But, you know, you'll have an administration with Mattis and Tillerson and Price at HHS, who knows what he's doing, and uh, other people, and hopefully Jared and others will keep it kind of a little less crazy. And it, there are ways to work around the problems, and you'll get some good things accomplished legislatively and in terms of Supreme Court justices. I do think now, what are we, just almost a month in, that that has flipped. And I think if you talk privately to Republicans on the Hill, it's like, oh, my God. I mean, what is going on? Can we survive this for four years? What if the wheels just come off? We haven't really experienced that in modern American politics. Again, people have had road bumps and problems. Yeah, and certainly no a month in. 
yeah, a month in. And it does feel to me, it was not, I mean, the Nixon comparisons are overwrought, but honestly, it feels a little like Nixon 73. You know, a president of the White House flailing about, uh, aides being fired, uh, cabinet secretaries basically figuring out how are we going to sort of cushion the effect of our own president on our agency or on the world, right? And I do think the big thing there, I think the big mistake Republicans on the Hill made was this kind of some of them facile, and among conservative commentators even more, facile belief that, hey, Trump won, huge upset, very impressive, great momentum. Republicans held the Senate, somewhat of a surprise maybe, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't, didn't lose too many House seats. So you know what? We're going to get all this stuff through. And I remember saying even in the transition, even when Trump looked a little stronger, really isn't it kind of hard to get stuff through Congress? I mean, Barack Obama had 59 and then 60 Democratic senators, right. and it took you guys a year to get Obamacare through and then well, year and a yeah. third, year and a quarter, really, to get it fully through. You got the stimulus. You got stopped on cap and trade. You didn't even try immigration. It was too complicated. I'm not saying you – know, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that it is actually hard to govern. Right. It is hard to get big pieces of legislation through. The idea that Mitch McConnell, who is a good legislative technician, can just snap his fingers – and produce a tax bill. Let's just say when you've it, got the system Ted, is set up. It's easier to stop things than totally. make things and you've happen. Totally. You know, you've got your Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, and you've got your Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, and you've got McCain and Lindsey Graham. It's not like they're all going to – They on, on for the last few weeks, it's been confirmations. And there, they've mostly held the line. And I think there's a deep view. If the president of your party is nominating someone who's not just manifestly unqualified or unethical, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So those will go through. And people are now over-interpreting that, I think, from the outside – and especially maybe on the left, where they really sort of think these Republicans on the Hill are kind of craven and cowardly, which they are to some degree, but um, that they're going to – the same thing's going to happen on taxes or on Obamacare repeal and replacement or on a million other legislative issues. And that is not the case. I mean, if you're elected to be a senator, a Republican senator, you think, you know what, Republican president, I'm going to vote 95 percent of the time for his, for his cabinet appointees and sub-cabinet appointees. Legislation. I'm a senator. You know, if I represent Arkansas, I'm not voting for a border adjustment tax. It's going to increase prices for my constituents. And Walmart, incidentally, which is the biggest employer of the state, is very much against it. And you're not going to, because Donald Trump won an upset victory, you're suddenly going to change your views on on a big issue like that. So I think his legislative agenda is in much more trouble than people think. What about Russia? Uh, we talked about your roots uh, with Scoop Jackson. Right. Um, what is your read on this president's relationship with Russia and Putin? And how did you react to his interview with Bill O'Reilly on Super Bowl Sunday uh, when he uh, appeared to equate how the United States does its business with the way Vladimir Putin does his? I think that comment about, you know, he's a killer, but we have killers. Yeah, you think, we've we've you done think our we're killing so, We think our country's so innocent. I think that hurt him more than any other thing before the Flynn baby firing. Um, or the Flynn fracas uh, among Repu- good alliteration among there. yeah that's good among Republicans yeah. on the Hill I think that was like a bit of a I noticed the people who had been bending over backwards to be kind of pro Trump uh, or 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 quiet about Trump Liz Cheney the new Congresswoman from Wyoming put out a statement or tweeted something about this is unacceptable and I I do think that was sort of crossing a, a line too far blame I mean Republicans have spent thirty years you know looking for opportunities to call the Democrats the blame America first party and uh, attacking moral equivalence and you know President Obama always wants to apologize for things that we've done and all this sort of thing and then suddenly there he is saying something that's so far beyond anything President Obama ever said uh, in criticizing the American government right. the, until apparently we 
recent, including very recent American governments, uh, both parties. I mean, that, that, that I think was a huge, that was a big moment. On Russia, look, I don't, you don't even have to get into the questions of money and other things, which are legitimate questions, obviously, uh, to say that just on his public statements, he is very, uh, he's too much too warm towards Putin, credulous about Putin, I would say, and seems to lack the fundamental understanding we can argue about how to uh, implement, so to speak, this understanding, and there are differences between conservatives and liberals on this, between like democratic allies on the one hand and authoritarian opponents on the other. We can then have a dis- debate about how to work with and also while checking the authoritarian opponents and the reset and this and that. Those are sort of policy issues. But I think both parties have had a general agreement that we prefer our allies to those who aren't our allies, we prefer liberal democracies to non-liberal democracies or non-liberal non-democracies, and that's kind of a guiding. That is that has been the guiding uh, philosophy of the U.S. Uh, it's not necessarily the guiding philosophy of everyone around Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, for example. Right, uh, and uh, you know, it seems it feels as if liberal democracies globally are sort of under assault, uh, and that there isn't necessarily. Uh, in uh, uh, a unified view within the White House and the administration of support for them. Yeah, I agree with that, and that's one of the most worrisome things. I, I'm and foreign policy. You know, if you mess up and really go off the rails and let your opponents straighten themselves a lot, that's hard to fix. I mean, domestic policy. At the end of the day, if you have a bad tax plan, you can replace it with a better tax plan. You forego some economic growth or whatever in the meantime. And the same with most aspects of domestic policy. Foreign policy, you can't sort of – if people lose confidence in the United States and decide to go nuclear, you're not going to unmake them nuclear, you know, even with a great successor. And I, that's one reason I was critical of some of President Obama's policies, but I, I'm equally critical and more critical really of Trump's. We don't really know what the policies are yet, but of the indications the approach, yeah. of some of his policies. And I, I, that's – for me, the foreign policy was always the kind of showstopper when it came to, well, gee, why aren't you supporting – uh, Trump, you know, because, yeah, I can imagine a fair number of judicial appointments that I like, a fair number of policies that I either like or think are kind of a close call. You know, I'm not I'm not hard, big, you know, one way or the other, the tax plan, I don't know, you know, it doesn't. But the foreign policy of, of a Trump administration remains, was worrisome when he was running, was worrisome during the transition, got a little reassuring for about a week or two there with Mattis. His appointments. And, and you, appointments. You wrote that or, or but, then, but then I've got to say this first month has been very unnerving to me and to many, many others, I think. What about on the issue of the Middle East? You, you've been very active on this issue of Israel. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, as we sit here in this particular week, had visited. And the president had a kind of odd, I thought, press conference in which he sort of casually tossed off that, ah, one state, two state, whatever they want is okay with me. Uh, and it seemed to be lacking in depth of understanding of what that meant. I think he's instinctively, you know, reasonably pro-Israel in a way that I would like. But I also tell my pro-Israel friends that if America is weak, that's bad for Israel. Even if you have a sort of pro quote pro-Israel president, if you know if you don't have the clout to do what you want to do around the world, that's the main thing we help Israel with. We bring to Israel. Uh, and what's worrisome, even when he says something that might be sensible, or there might be a reason why you'd want to uh, change policy, maybe the question of whether we should be neutral, kind of let them work it out rather than trying to impose a two-state settlement, whatever. I mean, that's an interesting policy debate among Middle East experts and within the pro-Israel community, honestly. One has no feeling with Trump that it's been argued out 
within the administration, that he himself has heard the arguments, that anyone's even had the arguments. I mean, I'd say that part of Netanyahu it. Netanyahu himself looked a little bewildered when yeah. at some of the comments that the president made. It's it's again, you sound like such a kind of you know old fashioned you know Washington type. Oh, it has to be an interagency process. There has to be this. There has to be that. And it doesn't. It can be that could be overdone. And a lot of the good things Reagan did, he did against the consensus and against some of his advisors. Incidentally, consensus. I am not but at not, all. Not, but not without forethought. Not without forethought. Not without letting it be debated. Not without some advisors probably giving him uh, good advice and people on the outside. And he, yes, as you said, that's a very good way of putting it, not without forethought. I mean, that is important. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you about another aspect of where we are in the world and uh, where America is relative to the world. You, you were a supporter of the war in Iraq, and you've basically been a supporter of muscular American leadership to promote democracies uh, and democratic institutions around the world. Um what did you learn from that experience about the limits of that and the ability of America to impose um, democratic institutions or democracy on countries where there is no history of it and where sort of tribal uh, history o- overwhelms uh, civic institutions? Look, I still think the main reason for going to Iraq was not to oppose democracy, but once we were there, I think we had to help them have a shot at liberal democracy. And incidentally, it's still a freer country than most in the Middle East and still a fairly democratic country, actually. Were you surprised when the president put Iraq on the on Yes, his, yes. His, it his was one of the more offensive. Uh, for the now, not that there aren't terrorists who could come from Iraq, but it was one of the – it is – remains something of an ally. We've let it slip. To, I don't think we should have gotten out the way President Obama did. We've let it slip too much into Iranian control. Look, I, I – we all, I'm sure, in the heat of the moment, exaggerated – uh, the uh, ease maybe of the democracy agenda. I'm not sure I did it as much as some others and Bush did, but you know, when you're a political leader, that often happens. I still fundamentally believe in it. I think from, you know, that there's plenty of evidence that countries that don't have that much tradition of liberal democracy can adopt it. It turned out to be easier in Asia, for example, than in the Middle East because of complicated cultural and historical and political reasons. But I still think it's not as impossible as some people say. And certainly where it does exist, we need to defend it. Yeah. Where, where people are fighting for it, we should help them fight for it. And I, I learned this a lot in the Balkans. And so for me, that was a very big uh, moment. I was not that – the Bush White House ended. I was doing other things. I was actually more focused on domestic policy in 93, 94. Uh, then in 95, we started the Weekly Standard. Bob Kagan and I wrote uh, – the first thing we ever wrote together, I think, an editorial in maybe December 95 supporting Clinton's intervention in the Balkans. Coastal, yeah. And um, yeah, Bosnia first and then mm-hmm. yeah, actually I think in 95. And then – and um, and uh, yeah, we, we had people canceling subscriptions. They weren't I, – I didn't, I didn't subscribe to the Weekly Standard to read editorials supporting Bill Clinton, you know. And people said, oh, history, you can't have anything decent there. They've been fighting for a thousand years, the Kosovars, the Bosnians, this, all these – and it, look, there are still problems there and it's not perfect and all that. But we did stop um, uh, slaughter there and we ended up with a better situation than we had started with. And if, maybe I overinterpreted that lesson, but I, it seemed to me that it was better to have intervened than not and it worked pretty well. And I think there are plenty of other instances like that. So I remain pretty much – uh, where I was in terms of both a muscular American foreign policy and secondarily, I mean, this is not quite as important as the fundamental American commitment to keeping a healthy world order, but to democracy promotion, uh, liberal democracy promotion, uh, rule of law and so forth. I do. One of the worst things about what Trump has done is that he's made that even harder 
obviously, and he himself campaigned against it. I was a little shocked at how few conservatives and Republicans uh, stood up against Trump on that. And so many people just, oh, of course we can't do nation building. What is that? Well, okay, if we, well, let's think about the implications of that. Are we just going to sort of say these people are going to remain, this place, this place is going to be hotbeds of terrorism for the next century and incidentally probably places with nu- of nuclear proliferation? Are we really unwilling to think that maybe it's our mission to try to do some of this? But So I, I remain pretty pretty committed to both the strong American foreign policy side of it and the promotion, uh, defensive promotion of liberal democracy side of it. The, um, you know, the, the challenge is that America's pretty weary after this experience, the experiences of the last two decades and, and uh, desirous of, of prudence uh, in terms of the missions that are Right, and we and they well, there it's it's partly chicken and egg, and partly leadership. And obviously, you know, the Bush it was it was tiring after nine eleven, and the war in Iraq went badly. The surge worked though, and I'm not sure that anyway. President Obama campaigned on what he campaigned on, and 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 did what he did. But I do think we, I think the question is after twelve years of presidents saying we need to do nation building at home, not abroad, and the, the nation's weary and so forth. Uh, the nation can be, tell itself it's weary, partly because its leaders tell them it's weary. Yeah. Well, there, we could talk a whole nother hour right. on that, and we'll have other opportunities in the future, I hope. But Bill Crystal, always great to be with you. Thanks. It's really good. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.